0: Always going to be skewed because of our sin because of our pride because of our lack of power so as we dive into that just kind of keep that in the back of our mind that everything we read about God's holiness the question that should be coming in your mind is am I that does that apply to me and the answer every time should be a resounding no So we'll pick it back up in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, which we're going to come back to because there's some massive significance there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we see right out of the gate Isaiah's vision of God is way different than we probably imagined. I mean, just think about it. When you pray, what do you picture God as? When you think about, when you meditate, when you picture God, what do you picture him as? Because Isaiah has given us a very clear picture that here is God sitting on his throne. And there's two things that come from that, his position and his authority. That God is holy because he is king. He's seated, seated in his throne. There's no one taking him off his throne. There's no way that we can overthrow his power, overthrow his authority. He is seated in his throne. Why? Because he's holy, because he's fully set apart, that there's none like him ever on his throne forever. Has always been, will always be on his throne. Your thoughts, your opinions, your words, whatever's happening in culture is not going to waver his throneness any bit. He is holy. That's where he is. But the other part of that comes his authority. Who sits on a throne other than a judge? That he's going to judge us rightly based on his holiness. James 4.12 puts it this way. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. Psalms 50 verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So here's where we have to start seeing that that he is fully set apart, that that God is not one that has kept the law, so he's earned this right. He created the law. He's fully set apart from anything we can ever wrap our minds around. So he is all authority, and he is all judge. Now, can I just, I have a lot of pet peeves, if you don't know this about me. Just, it's it's a wonder that I'm a pastor sometimes, because people drive me crazy. Here's one of the biggest phrases that just drives me crazy. Only God can judge me. Y'all heard that? I'm, I'm a chivalrous man, and it's typically girls, females that are here say that, but if I hear a guy say that, I might punch you. Only God can judge me. And we say that because we were going, listen, listen, uh, I don't care about your judgment. I'm only worried about God's judgment. You fool. God's judgment is way far worse than any man judgment's ever going to be. But we walk around so fearful of of what man's going to think about us, all the while forgetting that God is on his throne, fully holy, only able to judge because he has not kept the law, but he is the law. So his holiness, his set apart this, is who God is. He is king and he is judge. Are we? Are we king over anything? Can we rightfully judge anything? Anyone, anything? No, because we're all sinners in the same. We're all struggling to do what everyone else is struggling to do. So when we take our eyes off ourselves and and put it where Isaiah saw, man, what does that mean for us? Our holiness starts to diminish quickly. Calvin puts it this way. The purpose of the statement in any case is to attribute to God a grander beyond any human Form. So he's seated on his throne full of power, full of authority, and the grandeur is bigger than anything we can ever imagine. So we picture God and we think about God. Is that what comes to our mind? His holiness, his radiance, his power and authority. And and Isaiah goes on to say that the train of his robe filled the temple train of his robe. Now I think this is something that, that kind of gets lost in translation. I was thinking about this yesterday because it's kind of wedding season at the branch over the last year, but I, I kind of also think it's always going to be wedding season at the branch because uh, you guys grow up and then fall in love and get married and then have babies. And that's just, I think what's going to happen a lot. So as Kayla was walking down the aisle yesterday, it just got me thinking of my own wedding. And one of my favorite things about my wife's wedding dress was her train. I think, Sarah, we got the picture. So you can kind of see it, it's a dark picture but look at that thing don't look at my soul patch <laughs> judge me later mark used to have one right <laughs> what? did you used to have a soul patch uh, yeah, uh, goatee you. go you, okay <laughs> you're supposed to help me <laughs> right yeah yeah i did that so the train of her robe was one of my favorite things because when she was coming down, I mean, that thing was just gliding behind her. And, and the larger the train, the how, higher the power, the higher the authority. So, so check this. From 1953, when Queen Elizabeth II uh, was brought in as queen, she had a robe, uh, a train that was 18 feet long. This is 1953, 18 feet long. She had six people helping her with her train because the train was so long. 18 feet. So you've got this, this monarchy, this incredible lady coming to be the queen with an 18-foot-long train. And we still talk about it, and there's pictures of it today. But Scripture says that our God's train fills everything. It's spilling out everywhere. That the largest train that we can think of means nothing compared to the train of God. In ancient days, the flowing of the monarch's robe was a symbol of glory and splendor. So symbolically, the robe represents God's infinite splendor and majesty, His glory. So we just kind of skip over that detail. But in that, day, in that setting, everyone marveled that the God of all, God sitting on His throne in His robe, filled the entire temple. That meant something, that He was glorious, that He was richer than all else because He could afford this massive train that filled the temple. One pastor said, Air in the atmosphere. Air is in the atmosphere of the earth. God's glory is the atmosphere of heaven. So this means it is radiating glory in heaven because of His power, because of His authority, because of what the train represented. That He is all glorious because He is holy. Now again, we just have to stop. Are we? Can we afford that? Is there any part of us that, that is deserving of wearing a train that even barely tickles behind us? Is there any glory in us that has a robe or a train that will just flow as we go? No, none of us deserve that. None of us can afford that. If we try to wear that, we just get ridiculed because one, you're wearing a train in 2019. but Two, who are you to wear that? Who are you, how are you deserving of something like that? Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now this is the only mention of these creatures within the Bible. And the root word of seraphim is fire. So these are fiery beings that are flying around God, the presence of God. And we just have to stop because I know a lot of us, if you're anything like me, you grew up watching cartoons and we just, when we think of heaven, we think of the fat little babies with the wings just kind of like, oh yeah, floating around. No, these are fiery beings. And with two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, and two the flew. And the significance of that is massive because we see a physical manifestation of God's holiness these seraphim are carrying out. Both of them happen to Moses. So if you'll flip over to Exodus 32 with me. So wants to see these two. They'll be on the screen as well, but be safer in carrying out the same thing that happened to Moses. Exodus 32, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face. This is when Moses is pleading, let me see you. And God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me You where you shall stand on the rock. And when the gl- my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God said, Moses, you don't know what you're asking for. If you see my face, you will be ruined, you will be killed. That my holiness, that my glory will destroy you, you cannot see it. And so he puts him up in the rock and he passes by and and Moses is able to see his back as he goes by. But there's a reason the seraphim are covering their face. Because not even they can look upon the holiness of God and survive. But we just carry this haphazard respect for God. We just kind of put holiness to the wayside, and we think that, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him what happened to the dinosaurs. No, you're not. When you get to heaven, you're going to be on your face because you cannot bear to stare in the face of perfection and holiness. we got to understand this. to flip back to Exodus 3, because we'll see why the serpent covered their feet. Again, this happened to Moses. Exodus 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come to your off your sandals of your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of Jacob, your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So there's a holiness here. You've got to cover your face, cover your feet, because God is holy. And this isn't just some example. This isn't some metaphor. This is real life, guys. This is where the objective meets the subjective. We go, when we pray, when we worship, when we consider, when we talk about things of God, we should not do it lightly, haphazardly, or like he's not listening. We, couldn't, we shouldn't consider the things of God without thinking the holiness of God. Of God. We shouldn't talk about ourselves like we are holy. We should know that there's only one that is holy, that a simple glance in his direction would destroy us. That is the holiness of God which we are found here. Verse three, and one called to another and said, Holy sorry, back to Isaiah six, verse three. And one called to another said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So finally in this description, in this vision, the word holy is brought up. Even though we've seen the manifestation of holiness littered all through this already. We've seen the attributes of why God is holy, why he is set apart. So, what the seraphim are singing is what's already abundantly obvious. That there's no one like him. That this God that is there is like none other. He is fully set apart. He is fully otherness. That he's not like us. He is God. That there's none like him. John Calvin says it this way that surely the repetition proves rather the unwearied zeal of the seraphim. The prophet meant that the angelical song had no end. God's holiness furnishes them an inexhaustible theme. So they're praising him constantly for who he is. That this never stops because when there's someone that that's that holy, that glorious, he always deserves to be praised. That, that when it makes sense what we see in Scripture, let our lives be a life of worship. Let us do everything for Him, of course, because He is so holy, so set apart, that that just makes sense for us. Then they say, the whole earth is full of His glory. And this I kind of tripped up on a little bit, because what, what is the relationship between God's glory and God's holiness? Because both of those, if, if we're being honest, are kind of hard. They're untangible to see and consider and to touch and feel sometimes. And, and here's what I read from John Piper. The glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. When God shows himself holy, we see glory. The holiness of God is concealed glory. In the glory of God is revealed Holiness. So how is it that we understand God's holiness? Well, we see his glory all around us. That when we see, I mean, we we live spoiled to have mountain ranges all around us. When we climb to Preacher's Rock, when we come over Crown Mountain, when we see the mountains in the distance, we see God's glory on display. And that is God's manifest holiness. So how do we understand God's holiness? Well, look at the glory around us. Look at the miracles that take place. Look at the life that we have, the breath we get to breathe, because we deserve none of this. This That's all because God's glory. It's why our church's mission statement starts with, by God's glory, for God's glory, because we can literally do nothing else apart from that, and we do it all for God's glory. So when we talk about the glory of God, that is the physical manifestation of His holiness. So how do we understand God's holiness? We look at His glory. Now, this is where we have to really start to ask ourselves these questions. Because I know all of us, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have this Bible verse on a t-shirt somewhere. You have it on a sticker or a coffee mug. This verse is near and dear to a lot of us. But I think we just glance right over the depth of it. Verse 5. And Isaiah said, woe is me. Now, woe is me, this translation just doesn't get it. Because this is a guttural, I mean, they had to put something on paper. But this is a guttural response to what they've just seen. Woe is me. It's like, oh, woe is me. Okay. No, this is a I am done. And we see how it ends. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So R.C. Sproul says the Lord of hosts is originally a military term and its scope is extended to denote divine control over all created realm. So Isaiah is going, this this Lord of hosts, he is the army sergeant. He is the man. He has control. He has dominion over everything and I've seen him and I am ruined. Now let's just be real with one another because that's all we can do, right? There's no point in fluffing each other up for the sake of nothing. How many times have we considered that? How many times have we stopped to go, man, if I came face to face with God, am I going to be ruined? Because here we have to, f- again, everything can be balanced. We have this, yes, is God a father? Yes, and we can know him intimately. And when he says, let the children come to me. And there's that aspect of God for sure, 100%. Amen. But we also have to remember that he is holy. I don't know if you guys remember this. This was when I was in college. Uh, There's this huge fad that came out within Christian culture. I mean, it was a shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Do y'all remember that? Did anyone have one of those? Okay, because there would be a burning ceremony at the Staples if you did have one of those. Because what this did was it took Jesus out of the otherness. He took God's realm and reign as a holy, majestic king and put him into our definition. Oh, Jesus is my bro, man. We just hang out. We do life together. He's just my boy. That is that true? Yes. But we cannot separate that from his holiness, his power. The homeboy is holy, and we cannot separate those two. So yes, do we have that intimate relationship? 100%. But when we walk into heaven, when we get there, we're not going to go, bro, I totally sinned. Did you see that? No, that's not going to be the conversation at all. We're going to be on our face. Woe is me for I am dead. I am a man of unclean lips and I live with a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. I am ruined. We cannot fathom, we cannot taste the holiness of God. But, but, verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for so we start to see the other side of god's holiness I, I'm pretty strong-willed, and so when I first really came to faith and was really pursuing it, I, I heard a sermon, and then I read it, and I just argued. I, I'm, I'm a big arguer. I've gotten better. I do it internally, but uh, nine times out of ten, if you say something to me, I'm arguing with you in my head. I just won't tell you, but I heard this scripture, and I heard this sermon, be holy, for I am holy, and that just, that just, I hated that verse, I mean, all that I understand about Scripture, all that I understand about God's character, His nature, who He is, how is He going to expect me to be holy? Be holy for I'm There's just no way. The legalistic part of me said, okay, then, it, then it's on me. I, I've got to be holy because is what He says. First Peter 1 is where this idea comes from. He's quoting back to Leviticus. I think it'll be on the screen. First Peter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as you who is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And there's a moment where I just don't want to throw in the towel. Like, if that's what's expected of me within Christianity, I'm done. Because I, I know myself. I cannot be holy. If two things are put in front of me, holy or sin, I'm going to choose sin almost every time. So how is it that you expect me to walk in holiness when, when I know my sin, I know my character? But Peter doesn't stop there, and, and the seraphim doesn't stop there. Verse 17. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, you who through him are believers in God who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that you have hope and faith in God." So what we see here is Peter going, be holy, but you can't. Isaiah, stand up, but you can't. So the seraphim comes and flies over and uses the tongs to to redeem, to atone Isaiah. That is a foreshadowing of what's to come. Christ is coming to be the ultimate sacrifice because we cannot. The purpose of the law is not to uh, show us that we can do it, to show us that we can't. The purpose of Leviticus, be holy for I'm holy. It's not a command that you can it's a command that you can't. It's demonstrating for you that when we come into the presence of a holy God, you have nothing, you can do nothing, you are nothing. Are we tracking with that? I'm not trying to like ruin your participation trophies, but we have to understand this to understand the gospel that when we come face to face with God, we are nothing, we do nothing, we can earn nothing. Be holy for I'm holy should put fear in us because we can't. So the angel picks up, the seraphim picks up the tongs and brings it to us, foreshadowing of Christ will do this for you because you cannot And here we see a foreshadowing of what grace is. Because God had to do none of that. Isaiah could have been smited right there in front of him, and he would have been holy, right and just to do that, because he is holy. But what about his rights? What rights? In front of a holy God, you have no rights. All you are is a wicked, sinful human being. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips, that he is so set apart, you can do what you want. We'd have to sit in this, we have to marinate in this. Verse 8, and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me, and we love that. We love that verse, and I'm glad we love it. I'm not, I'm not going to put you down for that. I love that we have the heart of that. But if that heart, if that's not rooted in what Isaiah had seen first, if that is his attempt to become holy, he's damning himself. If we're not doing this, if we're not going, if we're not living on mission, if we're not part of missional communities bringing people into our lives, into our homes for the sake of God's holiness, we're just doing this so that we can be holy, brothers and sisters, we're on a way to away from the King. That we only do this because of God's holiness. So we need to check our hearts. We need to think through why are we doing this? Why are we saying, here I am, send me, I want to live for you. What is our motivation? Because if it's not because we came to a moment where we were laying on the ground saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, don't kill me. And we get the tongue, we see the atonement taken force. So if it's not rooted out of that, then we're walking in legalism that's going to destroy us. We don't have a true, genuine relationship with God. Every sin in our life starts from a low view of God. So as we manifest, if we think through the holiness of God, if we see sin taking place, we have to understand if it's the legalism, if it's the self-pride, the self-righteousness, all that comes from a low view of God. So what does all this mean? As we start to wrap up, as we start to consider and ponder this for ourselves, if we go back to verse one, I think there's a a, a major significance that that Isaiah just kind of drops into here. Because he says in verse one, that in that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. And we have to understand a little bit about who King Uzziah is to see the significance here. Because part of this, yes, sure, it's just giving us a time frame for when this happened, which was around um, 740 B.C. But King Uzziah in these days was a massive figurehead. He became king at 16, okay? Very rare, became king at 16 and reigned for 52 years. The Bible says that he himself, or he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him to fear God, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So Uzziah was the man here that he was leading out of a fear of God, that he got it, that he understood it. But it's it's when Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. And what's happening here? So, flip, last flip for me, 2 Chronicles 26 because there's a juxtaposition happening. There's a comparison happening here that I think will speak volumes to us in our situation this morning. Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. And this whole chapter is about Uzziah's reign and all the things he accomplished and the power and just the king that he was. Verse 15. It? Second Chronicles 26, verse 15. In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped till he was strong if you underline if you circle that that he was marvelously helped until he was strong let's see what happens but he went, when he was strong he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the lord his god and entered the temple of the lord to burn incense on the altar of incense but azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the lord who were men of valor And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn the incense of the Lord, but for the priests and the sons of Aaron who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord your God. Verse 19. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out of his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest of all the priests, looked at him, and behold, the leprous is in his forehead." And they rushed him out quickly, and he hurried himself to get out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lives in a separate house, and was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land." Now, the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from his first to his last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, he died, and buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. So here we have everyone around Uzziah thought Uzziah was it that he was holy, that he was set apart, that there's none like him, that he's the wonder child, that Uzziah is this great, majest, majestic king that can do no wrong. And at some point, Uzziah started to believe his own on hype. At some point, he said, yeah, I am that guy. I am holy. I am set apart. And he was marvelously helped till he grew proud. And he started to take control of things that he shouldn't take control of. And so the whole country was seeing the fall of Uzziah. And so in this juxtaposition, God goes, hey, you saw how Uzziah fall. Let me show you a king that will never fall, Isaiah. Let me show you the true king, the true holy one, that I am way holy, that I'm way set apart, that I am the otherness. That there's no one like me. You thought it was Uzziah, but look what happened when he played games with me. You thought Uzziah was the king, the holy, the set apart, but look what happened when he became so proud that he thought he was actually holy. And, and church, here's what we just have to. I just plead with you. I've been praying this over my own soul this week, praying over you guys. We have to understand that where we live in the time and the country we live in, we think that we are holy. That we think that we are set apart. In a lot of ways, we are. We're the richest in the world. If you're if you've graduated from college, you're top 1% in the world. We get this, we understand this. We have more money, more power, more authority than anyone else anywhere. And we're starting to believe our own hype. And then on the paper, on the surface, it looks great. It looks like you're career driven. It looks like you have a hard work ethic. It looks like you're wise, that you're saving, that, that you're a good person. But slowly but surely, we're going to start to belong or believe our own hype. That I am set apart, that I am holy, that I have something to offer. That what we're saying is, God, you have all of that, but I've got this. And th- this is mine. I can control this. And and how do I know this? Because I know the way that I pray, or rather the way I don't pray. How do we know this? I know the way that I worship, or rather how I don't worship. That when things start to come at me, who's the first one to take control of it? Me, because I'm holy, because I'm set apart, because I can fix this. My prayers don't start off with me in the floor, in the presence of an almighty God. It's me driving going, yeah, if I have time to pray today, I'm going to pray. Oh man, I'm the pastor, someone asked me to pray. Sure, okay, I, I prayed, I've done my part today. That the holiness of God is not something to be mocked. And he was marvelously helped until he becomes strong. So this course that we run after, the strength and power and dignity is what we're after, is actually destroying us, Church that fi- the, the, we can speak into anything, that your opinion matters about every single subject, every single matter proves that you think you are holy. I mean, I, I, am, I was joking about Steve's age. And, and I'm 32, so I'm not that old. But here's what I know. The older I get, the less I have any clue about anything. And so I love, church, hear me. I love the zeal that comes with college students and young adults. I, I love it. But can I just plead before you? Give it a break. Because you're not holy. And you're not set apart. And you're not righteous. And this swagger that comes out of us because we think we are is damning us. It's damning the world around us. That if we act like we are set apart, that we are the ones that are holy, people are start to judge us and say, well, I can't be like that, so I'm going to stay away from the church. Or I'm better than that, so I'm going to stay away from the church. That if we're talking more about who we are and less about the holiness of God, then we're pushing people in droves away from the church. His holiness, His gloriness, His name and His renown fills the earth. And there's nothing we can do about it apart from the coal that was picked up from the fire, apart from Christ coming down to rescue us, to redeem us. There's no way we have a shot at doing anything to earn God's favor, to earn God's right, because He is so holy, so set apart, so otherness that we can't even get there. So, church, I'm, how are we going to pray today that's any different? How are we going to sing today that's any different? How are we going to think about the character and the nature of God that's any different? How are we going to speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ that's any different in light of God's? holiness. How are we going to love and serve community in light of God's being fully set apart, which means that we are not the one thing church that binds us together as we are men and women of unclean lips that live in community with men and women of unclean lips. That's what holds us together. Our sin. That's why Paul says I'm going to boast all the more in my weakness. Because that's when Christ is strong. That's when His holiness, His glory is on display. So I know in a world of your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, who are you to judge? Who are you to tell me different? This is an unpopular message. But from Genesis to Revelation to now, His glory is on display. And the root of that is His holiness. So as we stop to prepare for communion, as as baptized believers, that we have two tables we can go to, what are we thinking? What are we praying? What are we considering? That there is a holy, righteous God that is fully set apart, that is on a whole different level. That should change the way we view Him, because in His goodness, in His grace, he made a way when there was no way. And God's holiness sent down his son for us. That is the gospel. Be holy for I am holy is an impossible task unless the Holy One brings it to you. So I'm, I'm just going to sit for a minute. We'll, we'll spend some time praying. But I think as we study, as we consider, as we ponder God's holiness, the obvious question is, I'm not. And where have I tried to be holy when I'm just separating, I'm just pushing him away because God is holy and I am not. So let us pray. Father, right now in this moment is, as we have some silent time to pray, Father, would we have a right view of you? Would we consider the words of Isaiah, the the scene that took place in front of him? The holiness of God was there. And his first thought was, "I'm, I'm done. I'm dead. And when we sing, that's who we're singing to. God seated on his throne with all power, with all authority. So church, spend a few moments just considering that truth. we know that all of our sin is rooted in a low view of God and his holiness so what sin what pride are we walking in this morning that if we came face to face with God we would instantly repent what is it in our life that we think we are strong that we think we are in control that we are the final authority And this morning, let us lay that at His holy and glorious feet. Would our view of God increase when we read, when we sing, when we pray, when we consider? Let us think through and place God rightly where He's seated in His throne high and lifted up exalted their seraph and singing how holy he is constantly forever and always because he is and he demands and deserves that level of respect and praise Father would you forgive us for such a low view of you would you forgive us for Placing you on the same plane of us. That you are like us. Because that is the farthest thing from the truth. You are so set apart. Father, we marvel at the fact that even though you are fully holy, you are fully set apart, owe us nothing. You sent your Son as a ransom. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you put on flesh and blood. You put your holiness aside so that you could make us holy, so that you could rescue us, redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why? Well, you were holy. You didn't have to do that. You owed us nothing Not only are you holy, but you are good. You are love, you are grace, you are mercy. And so church, as we take communion, would we examine our hearts first, as as we are baptized believers going to take communion, would we repent? Would we think through? Would we consider, pray, and ponder the holiness, the bigness of our God? And in light of that, when we examine our hearts, would we repent from the sin that's holding us down? Would we repent from the pride and the control and the arrogance that's in our souls? And would we worship you? Yes, because you are holy. In your holiness, you will love us. That you are a holy Father. When we repent from trying to figure you out and trying to put you in a box. So church, I'm going to leave this like this. There are two communion tables in the back. and Whenever you're ready, we're going to take communion together. And as we sing in a minute about how holy God is, we have a right view, a right understanding of what that means. So when you're ready, communion is open.